Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdall. Like, we need everything, right? We should be pressing every button and gleefully pounding all the keys, right? So this is not a, our way of doing CDR is better, but we do need to do, I think, some things that we might need to look at. I think there's been a perception in the CDR community that's fundamentally, or perhaps in the climate community, that this is fundamentally a technological problem. And due to leadership from Stripe, from lower carbon capital, from Amazon, Shopify, Google, a lot of the people that are leaders in this space, I now have faith that we have enough shots, or we have left at least enough momentum that there will be enough shots on the technical side. And that gives me a lot of like confidence and hope. But I do think that we have not yet sorted out how to finance it. And I do think that, especially in CDR, it's not clear to me how we make this work politically and socially. All right. Peter, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. It's great to have you. Thank you. Fun to be here. So why don't we just get started with your background and how you got to working on different climate solutions. I know that you've thought about a few for a long time, so kind of open the floor for you to guide us through your journey. Yeah. I mean, I always hesitate to do the, what was your path into climate? Because I feel like everyone could, you could start with the moment you took your climate job, or you could kind of go back to your the first day that you walked through the woods as a child. When I first <laughs> took a breath on this earth. Exactly. I knew. And I don't know, in hopes of splitting the difference a little bit, I feel like my family has always had a focus on kind of trying to solve problems that matter. That's the kind of narrative in my family. And so my grandfather, I looked up to a lot, worked in world health. My parents worked in education. My sister is a family nurse practitioner. And so I always kind of frame my career which has been quite winding for reasons that will become obvious as whatever was the most most interesting hard problem that I was most engaged with at the time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, after college, it's kind of the period after college was thinking about international aid and development, basically international equity and growth, and then move from there to domestic inequality and from there to climate. So I think the kind of the things that bind them together were that they tended to have a lot of people that I really like. I tend to find people that have both a guilt complex, like this is my fault, but also a hero complex, like I'm going to fix it. Mm -hmm. Those people tend to be really fun. And just so from a kind of a not altruistic perspective, I just like the people that you find working on these problems. Mm. And so part of the reason that I ended up in climate is because this is where I think the most interesting people are. And so I, I, you know, practically I ended up, I did different stuff and, microfinance, aid, software development, et cetera. But I think everyone in climate has the moment where they realize that everyone who they think is on top of it, like, oh my gosh, all my friends who got their environmental science degree, like they're all over this. I don't, they don't need me. (laughs) There's a moment where you wake up and you're like, oh my God, (laughs) they do need me, huh? Yeah. And so that for me was as kind of summer of 2019 and spent a bunch of time kind of figuring out how to make that transition. But I think the question of like how I got into CDR is also, you know, just kind of a winnowing down of opportunities from, okay, I want to work on climate. Well, that in some sense that contains the whole world of opportunity. Right. And as someone without a background in it, where can I be most useful and where am I most interested? And I think, I guess I was pretty pragmatic about it. I mean, I could go work on selling EVs or installing solar Neither of those sound particularly interesting to me. And the interesting parts of those sound like either financing, which I don't have a huge amount of, or, you know, haven't spent a lot of time on, or engineering. And I really wanted to work on something, a portion of the, you know, selfishly, I wanted to work in a, a portion of the market that I thought was going to grow mm-hmm. and where I might be able to do interesting work from early on, right? right. And so CDR is a small market. It's a new market. And basically... You know, there's people that have been on working, you know, on this for 50 years, but the amount of information out there relative to say, you know, electric motors is tiny and the community is minuscule. And so getting up to speed and becoming someone who 
can contribute is comparatively a very easy task. And so that was very appealing. So yeah, so I ended up working on CDR and specifically, you know, the kind of CDR that I thought was most interesting, which is the CDR that interacts with open ecosystems, particularly terrestrial open ecosystems. I was kind of like, all right, that's it. And that's what I'm going to focus on. Right. You're like, that's compelling. Nice tidbit in there, incidentally, about, you know, folks that may be listening in and aren't convinced that there's a place for them to plug in in climate. I think the way that you framed it of like, there are some people that certainly seem like they have their shit together, if you will, with their environmental science degrees or mechanical engineering, what have you, all very necessary. But folks with really any type of skill set can be useful at all kinds of different companies that drive massive climate impact. So quick plug for people that may or may not be convinced of that yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Like I, without being too self-helpy, like you can totally do this. <laughs> like this is, um, I feel like there was a time in which being a software company meant something specific and you know, that time has come and gone, right? Like if you work at Disney, you could work, you're kind of technically a software platform in addition to being a content production company and, just about every company is now a software company in some meaningful sense. You could work at Union Pacific Railroad and probably be doing something in software. Right. Do, you know, ML for analyzing the tracks that the cars run on, right? Right. And in some sense, I really feel like climate is where uh, software was in the 90s, in which people are like, I work at a climate company. <laughs> and you're like, oh, cool, right? That kind of means something right now. Mm-hmm. But five years from now, it's just not it's going to mean something really different in the 10 years from now that will feel like a ridiculous thing it'll be like saying you work at a software company now it's yeah. like okay what does it do <laughs> you know and so i like i really echo that point it's just like we need everyone to work on this stuff and the perception that you know that climate tech is something specific is i think only notionally true and probably only temporally true yeah, I think that's a great point. And I mean, that's coming from someone myself who writes what is ostensibly like a quote unquote climate tech newsletter and has a climate tech podcast. Like that is probably going to need to change soon in terms of how I frame that. Like <laughs> You've got an expanding purview. <laughs> yeah, five years ago, you could raise a climate tech venture fund and that was kind of like edgy and unique. But now folks are raising venture funds to invest in like wildfire mitigation or ocean-based carbon removal, like much more specific because that's needed and just kind of, yeah, I mean, the amount of money that's coming into the space, the amount of people that want to work on the space, rightfully so, like more specificity is is warranted at this point. So back to the carbon removal and kind of like the CDR side of things, let's talk a little bit more about, started kind of talking about the specific area of carbon removal that you're most excited about, because there's lots of different ways that folks are endeavoring to remove CO2 from the atmosphere, direct air capture with big engineered machines, one kind of one end of the spectrum and leveraging the power of nature, planting more trees or what have you. It's kind of the other side of the spectrum. Let's talk a little bit about the work that you're involved in now and, and what it is and, and why you're so excited about it. Yes, I work at a, a climate company. It's actually <laughs> a carbon dioxide removal company called Undo, and we work with enhanced rock weathering. So the shortest and sweetest version of it is we take a specific kind of rock, it's usually basalt, we grind it up real small or we buy it already ground and we put it on agricultural land. And the there's a chemical process by which water that has uh, been dissolved in rain is transformed into carbonates, which mm. flow down from kind of the, the soil where we're putting the rock down through rivers to the ocean and eventually kind of forms the, becomes part of geologic storage at the bottom of the ocean or in the form of kind of either lamb, probably limestone or right. um, shells, carbon issue shells. Nice. So, but you know, it's a what we're our north star, if you imagine it, is to kind of transform the way that we can do CDR from these hyper technical solutions that are quite demand a lot of their own infrastructure and don't necessarily deliver a lot of co benefits outside of pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, which, mind you, is super important to a way where we can transform a lot of the inputs that go into ag. We can help support regenerative ag transformation of, of kind of, you know, globally. And uh, we can deal with CDR within the context of existing infrastructure. How do we basically do the things that we're already doing, but put CDR into that work, right? And so instead of 
building a factory that does CDR, you take our existing factories, and this is what kind of what Noya does in an explicit sense. They take, you know, they do CDR in a factory, right? Mm -hmm. Well, so what we want to be able to do is do CDR in agriculture Mm -hmm. and on our land in a way that, you know, drives a lot, I think, a lot of benefits back into the communities that we're working in. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's kind of this more holistic approach of like, for this to reach a significant scale, got to figure out a lot on kind of like the science and technical side of things, but it also needs to, or it'll be easier if it integrates more easily with things that we're already doing, if I hear you correctly. Yeah, that's exactly how I see it, right? Like, we need everything, right? We should be pressing every button and gleefully pounding all the keys, right? (laughs) So this is not a, our way of doing CDR is better, but we do need to do, I think, some things that we might need to look at. I think there's been a perception in the CDR community that's fundamentally, or perhaps in the climate community, that this is fundamentally a technological problem. And due to leadership from Stripe, from lower carbon capital, from Amazon, Shopify, Google, a lot of the people that are leaders in this space, I now have faith that we have enough shots or we have left at least enough momentum that there will be enough shots on the technical side. Mm-hmm. Right. And that gives me a lot of like confidence and hope. But I do think that we have not yet sorted out how to finance it. And I do think that, especially in CDR, it's not clear to me how we make this work politically and socially. Yeah. And in that context, having durable carbon removal that functions in inside of our the way our world is is set up already. So, you know, allowing farmers to participate in the carbon market is something that is very clear that that is something that people want, right? I think there's a lot of discrepancies around soil organic carbon, how people feel about it, what are the expectations, what the science says. But it's very clear that from a social perspective and from a political perspective, that's important. Right. And so if we can come up with ways in which we're doing durable, reliable CDR at scale in kind of political and social contexts that allow you to build broader consensus, distribute the economic benefits more widely, do stuff that people think is good, that is net really positive for the climate community. And ultimately, I think, critical to getting up to the high gigatons scale of, of CDR that's necessary. I think we could come up with kind of like hyper-technical, quite specific ways of removing carbon. And maybe we could scale that to hundreds of millions of tons or even maybe a gigaton. But when you look at what the IPCC says is necessary, we're talking, you know, eight to 10 gigatons every year for a long time. Right. Billions of tons. Yeah. Yeah. And so if, if you're thinking about like how durable our solutions need to be, they need to be really durable socially and politically mm. in addition to being like really feasible technically. And so, yeah. Oh, that's an awesome perspective. I hadn't thought about it exactly in those terms, but I think you're right. Like for this to be at the scale that scientists are modeling will be necessary, there have to be really broad coalitions, if you will, about people supporting it and not just supporting it, but excited about it and like able to integrate it and into their daily lives. And there's also more equity in that. Like if this were just something that were continuing to happen in like, I don't know, kind of the same way the oil and gas industry operates now, where it's like you've got these very specific companies that are set up to do the extractive work. Like you could imagine a scenario in reverse where it's like you could have these very specific companies in the future that are set up to do this extractive work of removing the CO2 back from the atmosphere. And perhaps they're capturing all the economic benefit of that. And we're while we're going to need DAC, I consistently think about what everyone, I think, kind of accepts as the end state for super large scale CDR, which is some sort of public compensation for removing CO2. It's a commons problem. It's kind of what governments are for. We're going to sort this all out together. And at some point, governments are going to you know, pick up the tab in a way that extends beyond 45Q and maybe you know, we're doing this at a global level and each country has their own way of doing it. But fundamentally, what we're talking about is kind of like pooling resources and buying CDR in some sense at really large scale. Hmm. And I think practically, we need to think about how 
what people feel about that. <laughs> and if what you're describing comes true, right? And it's what people feel is like, hey, this is extractive. And, you know, now instead of an oil pipeline running through my town, I have a CO2 pipeline. Right. But I still don't see any benefit from that. Like, that's not as durable a solution as we need. And it's especially not something that people are going to be excited about doing over long term, even when there's, the economy is bad, etc. And so, you know, whatever, this is pretty abstract. And I, I think like it's our company does enhanced rock weathering, but there are lots of different ways to think about doing this stuff. It's just kind of like open ecosystem stuff, I think is something that I'm particularly interested in. Yeah, I really enjoy the perspective of not just, there's a number of things I want to talk about, even just from what we've already discussed. But I, you know, just to summarize, I think integrating that social perspective, the political perspective, even beyond things that are like obviously relevant, like things like, can I get the permits to operate the which matter, project, right? right <laughs> which also totally matters to operate. If like we don't project. get to solve the fun end state, how do we get from one gigaton to 10 gigaton problems until we get to a gigaton? So I also don't think we necessarily need to like solve these problems now. And we should say like, well, you know, if, if DAC is going to centralize the economic benefit of CDR to a small group of people, like it's not part of the mix. Like, no, it absolutely is part of the mix. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We should be thinking about how we're going to solve that problem as we go along. Cause we don't have an infinite amount of time to sort it out. Let's spend a touch more time. I've always found kind of enhanced rock weathering, like the actual pathway for carbon removal, pretty fascinating. Like how do you sum it up for folks? in 60 or 90 seconds or 120 <laughs> like how does the how does the carbon removal happen what do you mean the the like the, the chemical portion of it yeah so i'll try my best and i'm not a geochemist here so there are better people for this but essentially as water forms in the atmosphere droplets of water form you have carbon in the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere which dissolves into the water, right? It naturally dissolves, carbon dioxide naturally dissolves in the ocean, also naturally dissolves into any water, including rain. So if you think about rain globally as just a way in which the atmosphere takes carbon dioxide, moves it around, all rain is a little bit, is slightly acidic, right? It's pH of about four, and it changes you know, by region, but this is happening globally all the time, everywhere. And what's happening as when the rain falls, it falls on rock, right? This happens, you know, something about about a gigaton a year of rock weathering, mm. right? So if we talk mm. about enhanced rock weathering and then we talk about natural rock weathering, natural rock weathering takes down about a gigaton of carbon every year. And it's one of the primary levers that regulates the Earth's CO2, the concentrations of CO2 in the Earth's atmosphere. So when it's warmer, it rains more, and more CO2 can dissolve in droplets of water, so the rain's slightly more acidic, therefore weathers rocks globally slightly more quickly, and the CO2 is captured at a slightly increased rate. So I don't know what the actual timeline is, but if we just stopped emitting carbon and and just kind of left everything alone, you know, this cycle, rock weathering, would store all the carbon excess carbon in the atmosphere over the course of, I don't know, you know, 10 million years or something like that. Or I actually don't know what number, but it might be, it's mm. not 10,000. It's a long time, but it's not an infinite amount of time. In any case, what's actually happening is you have carbonic acid in, in water. It's falling on rocks that have high levels of bases. So in the case of basalt, it's magnesium and calcium primarily, similar to kind of olivine, but slightly different rock chemistry. In any case, that process, the bit acids and bases, there's chemical reaction there. They form carbonates. Those carbonates dissolve in water and are transported down through the hydrological cycle to the ocean mm. and are either in the ocean transformed into shells by you know animals, crustaceans, etc. that live in the ocean, or it precipitates out as lime in the bottom of the ocean. So it's kind of where limestone, you know, this is your when people are digging up lime, this is what they're digging digging up. Got it. And so to accelerate the process, you think about creating more surface area almost, if you will, for rain to... Yep, so that's why we crush it up, right? So if you think about just the weathering process is governed by how much carbon falls on how much rock. And as you can imagine, the weathering happens on the outside of the rock. So what we're trying to do is dramatically increase the surface area of the rock. 
So we crush it up. Mm-hmm. So it has a lot more surface area. And then we put it in places where it's either going to be tilled into the soil or getting rained on. And when it's in the soil, you know, the amount of CO2 in soil, because plants are respiring CO2 into the soil, or sorry, because the soil microbiome is has a lot of CO2 in it, where you have much higher levels of soil CO2 concentration. And you can either weather the rock kind of underneath the soil, or, you know, if it's just happens to be sitting on top of agricultural land before it gets tilled in, when the rain falls on it, it will weather there. Got it. And as a lead into, you know, I see you as someone who's thought a lot about kind of the financing side of, of CDR as a lead in into that topic for folks that might not be as familiar as with kind of like the business model, like you're performing this work in an attempt to accelerate a natural process that removes carbon from the atmosphere. How do you get paid for it? <laughs> so we get paid for the carbon we remove. And so I think there are kind of two questions there. There's uh, the question of kind of MRV, which is the kind of more, the most challenging portion of working with open ecosystems. Mm -hmm. And then there's just the basic compensation. So I think there's a lot of time and effort that has gone into and will go into making MRV processes better over time. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about what we're getting paid for, I think there's this desire, especially among people who are used to working with metered types of CDR Mm -hmm. to get a specific answer that is exactly correct. So mm-hmm. how much exact carbon has been taken out over time. And I think when working with open ecosystems, I think there's going to be less certainty. And we have gotten comfortable with certain kinds of uncertainty. So there is a thriving soil organic carbon market. There's a lot of uncertainty in that market. For there's sure. a thriving you know, biomass or you know, tree-based, forestry-based carbon market. There's also a ton of uncertainty in that market. Mm-hmm. And so enhanced rock weathering takes place inside of an open ecosystem. And so you're going to have divergent but correct scientific reports. You're going to have divergent but correct field studies and outcomes. And I think what our goal is with our MRV process is to drive down the uncertainty over time. And in doing so, increase the amount of carbon that we're able to valorize. And also just to be clear and transparent about the uncertainties that do exist. Exactly. And I think, unfortunately, the the market wants... CDR, if it's permanent, right, which in, you know, enhanced rock weathering is a very high permanence method, there's also the desire for extreme certainty around, like, if you think about how long it's going to last, well, it's, we're certain it's going to last a long time. It's not like a tree, it can't set on fire. Once you put the rock down in the field, you can't go get it back out. But you don't necessarily, you're not going to know with 100% surety how, exactly how much carbon has come out. Right. And we'll get better and better and better at that. But it's, you know, farmers don't know exactly how much corn they're going to grow either. But we've gotten really good at predicting the results. Right. So in any case, so we're in the process, when we think about getting paid, we're in the process of defining our MRV so that we can say with confidence, here's how much carbon, you know, we're credibly removing from the atmosphere and then, you know, getting people to buy it. So we're a Stripe grantee and we sell primarily to kind of forward-looking, thoughtful carbon, you know, corporations that want to be on the edge of what is kind of interesting and happening in, in scalable permanent CDR. And so we've nodded at some of the organizations that have really already done incredible work at accelerating the kind of demand side of the carbon of the CDR market, like Stripe, Shopify, those types of players have committed a lot of dollars where, you know, they're not even necessarily expecting a return on their capital. They just want to support the blossoming of this industry. What other kind of financial solutions did you wish existed as someone who's working on the supply side of this market, doing the work, hoping to get paid for it and to accelerate how much of it you're doing? Yeah. So we haven't talked a lot about refi or regenerative finance, and that'll come up a little bit later. But I think there's just like the way that I think about the financing financing these kinds of solutions is there's a ladder, right? And Stripe and a lot of the kind of people that have emulated their work have done this incredible thing in which they've they've just put the bottom rung on the ladder. <laughs> just been like, all right, everybody on. Yeah. We're climbing now. And that has had an absolutely transformative effect. But the further the companies climb up the ladder, the more surely they're going to need the next rung on the ladder. And so then you see this in the market, right? Like when you know, when we talk to 
Stripe, or you talk to people like Di Ellis, who has written a lot about these kind of different ways of exploring financing. So things like volume guarantees and all those kind of these next level mechanisms for financing CDR at scale. I just kind of think about them as rungs of the ladder. So the bottom is definitely grants. And then the next stage after that is kind of equity, right? And I think people traditionally are going, okay, well, you could just get lots of, you could just take these huge equity rounds and you see them like heirloom to big round, obviously Climeworks took these, you know, took, has taken a ton of money. Yeah. $640 million this year alone. Right. And it's amazing, but also you can look at that and you go, I mean, what would the valuation of the company have to be for us to mobilize? What, I forget who said $5 trillion, but they're huge. Like tr- we need to mobilize enormous amounts of cash into this. And if you're thinking about it from an equity standpoint, like you can't, you just can't, you can't, you can't make the math work. The car, the companies would be, have to be too valuable. You'd have to buy too much of them. Mm-hmm. We need other mechanisms for doing that kind of putting money to work in ways that are going to help finance CDR. And because the expectation for CDR is that the companies are going to grow a lot, there's enormous appetite to put money in equity financing. What we don't see is, you know, even the biggest players are buying 10,000, 100,000, maybe a million tons over a decade right. kind of thing. What we don't see is people saying, I will buy 100 million tons as soon as you can possibly get it. Right. And so I guess I kind of, you know, we've talked a little bit about grants and then there's, you know, equity that allows people to start scaling up. And then there's kind of smaller corporate purchases like the what we're seeing now. The next step, I think, is kind of things like volume guarantees and kind of forward financing or at least financing for offtakes, like the thing that Patch just launched and what, uh, shoot, Enduring Carbon, no, Enduring Planet. Enduring Planet, yep. <laughs> um, as recently launched, right? And those are really, really helpful, but they're still limited, right? If we want the market to grow really, really quickly, the lag time between when we're putting money in and when the carbon comes out is getting kind of long for us to continue to grow really fast based on these to, based on a, hey, like, uh, you know, if you can you pay me back later, mm-hmm. debt, you know, things like that. You know, a lot of the DAC companies, T's and C's, if you buy carbon on their website, you're going to get it in, I don't know, three to six years or something like that. Right. So we're already operating way out in the future. And so when I think about this, then like what actually needs to happen is we need to be able to do forward financing at scale. Mm-hmm. And I think there are lots of interesting questions that that raises. But I've been, this is something, you know, I've talked about refi for a moment earlier, but I think, I guess one of the things that I see is what Stripe and others have done on the technical side. We're going to just try to make this exist, right? It seems like it's really working and they'll continue to do it, which is incredible. What I haven't seen is a similar focus on trying stuff in financial innovation and MRV, right? So there's, there aren't as many shots on goal on the kind of, can we try weird financing stuff um, side of things? Yeah. And when I think about the intersection of crypto and climate, which has gotten a bad rap for a lot of some deserved and some undeserved reasons, what I really see it as is an opportunity to try stuff that is potentially disruptive to the market. It's a potential to try things that are relatively small, but could scale and really change the way that financing works. But if you go with $50,000 to... Um, Bank of America, and you say, "Hey, can you figure out how to do some forward financing for me?" <laughs> they'll they'll just like no, obviously no. Right. It's not that's not the kind of money that we talk and think about. Come back with five hundred million dollars, and maybe we'll think about exactly. it. exactly right. Come back when you're right a hundred times the size or more, right? Yeah. Whereas people in the refi space, and you know, there's a lot of really climate aligned people who want to figure out how to make this stuff work. And have raised money to try things. So you have, you know, you have chains like, you know, Cello and Cosmos, Ripple, and I don't know, Solana and others that have full-time climate people. Mm -hmm. And what they're trying to do is make stuff happen. Right. And that's a really unique opportunity. And one in which I think, like, we should try to spend time exploring that space, not out of any sort of, or at least in my part, like, deep technical love of blockchain, but because this is an opportunity to take a shot on goal with in a clear area of need, right? The next right. thing after solving the technical side is solving the, the financial side of the getting to gigaton scale. 
I mean, I think you bring up a really interesting point, with, which is we need to be tinkering and taking shots on the financial side, not just on the technical side. Like that's kind of big point number one for me is like there are now, fortunately, like a very solid amount of people that are trying to create different companies that remove CO2 from the atmosphere. And some of them may well figure out really good solutions and that's great. But yeah, now there's this next challenge of like, how do you get them the money to really scale their solution up significantly if they do find something that seems like it's going to be pretty productive and, and works. And it should be something that folks are interested in, right? Like there's very little that people in the world like tinkering with more than, than finance. Traditionally in the past, like we've done so much financial tinkering over the last 20 years. It seems like this should be something that more people and to your point, people are getting excited about it that we know of, but it seems like something that more of the, you know, Goldman Sachs and other companies like that in the world should be getting excited about because that's like right up their alley. But given that they are not yet, I think crypto is an interesting area because it is a reasonably coherent, even if new and still young kind of financial system that you can build on your own in, which is not true of the traditional financial system. Like you do have to be a Bank of America to have any sway in building more traditional financial products. Totally. And I view, you know, I, I think there are lots of reasons that when people are like, well, why does it have to be on blockchain? And I think there are a lot of people in the blockchain space feel really strongly that it has to be on blockchain for a lot of different reasons. And they're happy to tell you about them. And my view of it is kind of like, sure. I mean, I think distributed databases are really useful and especially in situations in which we're tracking a lot of different data in a market that traditionally is deeply unorganized and pretty has a lot of pretty bad data. Okay, great. Does it need to be on blockchain? No, probably not, right? But is is there the opportunity to help traditional market players change? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when if you looked whatever it was a decade ago and GM and Ford and Toda and all these huge companies, like, are they building electric cars? Like, no, no. But Tesla decides to build an electric car. And then, you know, all these other guys go, oh, guess we gotta, <laughs> we, guess we gotta do this, right? And not to say that blockchain is electric cars, but that climate finance is the thing that needs to happen. And if you can make it happen in one place, there are gonna be people that, you know, all these banking institutions are gonna be fast followers. But I think they're pretty hesitant to be the first who wants through the door. And I think there's a huge opportunity for people in the space to help define what the future of climate finance looks like and do it in a way that I guess I hope, you know, is, allows a lot more people to participate and allows us to scale in a way that lets us hit gigaton goals and do all kinds of other awesome stuff that people in refi care a lot about, like ecosystems, biodiversity, all kinds of stuff like that. For me, is it about, you know, overthrowing all the major financial institutions and replacing everything? Like, no, but it's about creating a forcing function so that they focus on these things that I think sidely are super important. Yeah, and I think you raise another important point, which is it doesn't inherently have to be about crypto or cryptography or blockchains. Like, that's just part of the, that's just where some folks are interested and operating right now and where it's starting to sprout up. And we should be excited about the fact that people are taking shots. I think crypto has become so polarizing because there are a lot of hucksters and there was a lot of animosity when, for some reason, when prices were, when crypto coin prices were a lot higher in the last couple of years. I think a lot of people got arrogant about that that had been in there early and that annoyed people that weren't involved at all. (laughs) But now, given that polarization, there's kind of like this unfortunate attitude at times where it's like people that are trying to build something useful in crypto or blockchain, it's like if they don't succeed, it's kind of like a, people like take a shot at it, like haha, like you failed. Whereas in the real world, like if right. you build a plumbing business and it doesn't succeed, like no one's like, oh man, like <laughs> you're such a rube for having attempted that. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So getting away from some of that, I think, especially as far as like the climate crypto conversation goes, like people are well intentioned and are trying to build useful stuff. I like thinking about spaces in which you have two communities that have a lot of overlap but are really dismissive of each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, for example, well, I mean, whatever. This is a perfect example, right? You have a lot of people in finance who are deeply dismissive of crypto to the point at which if you bring up crypto, they'll just be like, no, yeah, this conversation is over. And then you have the same on the other side, right? Which is, you know, if you're like, hey, you know, let's, I don't see why 
you know, Bank of America couldn't do this. And they'll be like, no, for all these ideological reasons, like, no, we can't do it. And so I, I tend to think that those tend to be really fertile areas mm. for interesting stuff happening because you have people pretending that there's a wall when they're not in fact a wall. Yeah. And so what I suspect will happen in CDR financing or just carbon financing, and I guess regen stuff generally, is that you'll see a lot of super innovative stuff come up in blockchain and that traditional players will end up adopting it or adopting something that looks exactly like it mm-hmm. in a year. Uh, once they go, oh, actually, that turns out it isn't BS. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, everyone will go, oh, yeah. Well, you know, I, I was doubtful, but happy to be proven wrong. And then they'll be like, all right, we got to do it. Right. Onwards. And I just, exactly. And, you know, the thing that people were fighting about, oh, this can't be done. It's a bad idea. They'll never do it. We'll just kind of fade away as the, you know, the economic rationales come to light. Right? People go, oh, that actually, that's working, as it turns out. Yeah. So what in the kind of regenerative finance space, which is also kind of an encompassing way of thinking about climate and crypto and and finance in my mind, like what do you see that folks are working on that like gets you really excited, whether for, you know, your, the business you work for undo or or just in general? Yeah. So I'm biased here because I have spent the last kind of like year really trying to see the best in this space and being like, all right, cool. How are we going to, how can we do this? Mm -hmm. Right. If we want leverage on the voluntary carbon markets, the registries and the financing, like this is a space in which we, we can do that. Let's figure out how to make it work. You know, I I think there are a lot of people doing really interesting stuff, you know, from kind of, I'm going to forget people here, but markets like, you know, Senken and, you know, forward financing like SolidWorld and Thalow and increasing kind of like engagement with consumers, stuff like Ariel and return. I just think that there's a huge amount of really interesting businesses. I think what people think about when they think about refi is like Klima and how everyone got really burned. And there's a lot of hurt feelings about that kind of all around. For folks listening that might not know what happened. (laughs) Yeah. And also just kind of the perception that it was a Ponzi scheme, regardless of kind of like Right. You know, Klima appears to be doing tons of really great stuff now. But like that was something that really entered the kind of lexicon around the idea. But I think we got like a second wave. We're now in fully in the second wave of refi companies of people who were like, okay, great. So let's try to solve practical problems for project developers and that the blockchain piece is, you know, relevant, but not perhaps the core selling point. And so I think those ideas are all really interesting. There are all kinds of really cool companies that are coming up around that space. The thing that I am most excited about is the transition from moving. So if you imagine a smart contract, right? A smart contract allows you to do a lot of different things. But the current way that most of the market works is trading of verified credits, right? So you can search for, retire, all on verified credits. And my perspective is roughly that anything that's happening with already verified credits is not going to be as additional as generating new behavior because you're taking something that definitely already exists right. and then you're doing stuff with it, right? It's a past so action. So maybe, you, yeah, exactly. So, and there are ways that this really matters, right? Like Klima for all of its, all the kind of issues, like did change the price of carbon for a period of time. Like it was pretty insane that that actually happened. But there is this limit right? You're going to say, okay, I'm going to buy this carbon. I'm going to wait. I'm going to speculate on it, but it's all existing assets, right? And if you imagine the kind of growth curve that both nature-based solutions, but also CDR, everything else that we're doing in climate needs to take, essentially the entire past is just the tiniest fraction Mm -hmm. of what needs to happen. Basically all the action where we win and lose on climate is in the future. Yeah, And therefore, what I'm most excited about is helping the community change the locus of behavior and the kind of so-called primitives, right? From things that already exist to things that will exist. Because that allows us to be hyper-additional and fundamentally address the way that we're actually going to get up this crazy hill that we have made for Mm -hmm. ourselves. And the reason I bring up smart contracts is because when you're just trading an existing asset, the smart contract is helpful 
but it's not super helpful, right? Like, could you just do it without blockchain and you could just trade the asset like a commodity? Many people do. <laughs> right, people do all the time. That's how stock market works, right? Or commodity markets work. I like that reframe too, because voluntary carbon market in the past has in its own way, kind of same as crypto, people have soured on it. It's had plenty of controversy. It's had plenty of problems and issues. And so almost like if you're going to create new solutions, it's almost more of a compelling opportunity to create like them from a completely blank slate for the future instead of trying to interface with and engage with like the old systems, old models, old credits, even like there's something powerful in that too. It's just like, all right, we're not saying that that stuff's inherently all broken or anything like that by any means, but we can create new solutions in a forward-looking fashion for what the future of like how we want this to look. Yeah, and that we understand, I think, if we expect a curve to be exponential, the majority of carbon credits will always be in the future. <laughs> yeah. And so we are whatever, until 2050 or something. But in that context, the forward portion of the market needs to be the bigger, more developed, more thought out, higher volume portion of the market. Mm -hmm. And delaying the arrival of that will just simply slow down the market. Right. Like as a buyer or a financer of that, why am I engaging in this behavior? What's my motivation? Yeah, it's an interesting question. We have some answers, but we don't have a lot of answers on that. Mm. I think the existing group of buyers is buying it for what I would consider to be altruistic or semi-altruistic reasons. They're buying it because they think it should happen in, in most cases. And they are in the position of having a thick enough margin and a durable enough business that they can afford to do it. Yeah. And that they're seen as leaders kind of broadly, right? People like look up to right. Amazon and Stripe and these companies that are making these bets and they see them as technical leaders. So having them be at the technical edge of this thing that globally is important is great PR, right? Amazing PR. And you get to build kind of like your sphere of influence. Like if you think the carbon removal market is going to be massive in 20 years and you were part of the reason that it got to that size in the first place, then suddenly, even if like the initial financing that you did 20 years ago wasn't, didn't like have an ROI attached to it in terms of pure dollar terms, like you then get to be this behemoth conceivably in carbon removal in 2030 or 2040. I think there are, if you divided the value of a carbon credit down into two pieces, you would have a PR piece, right? This is a story we can tell. It's valuable to our employees, to our customers, to our stakeholders that we're you know, taking this stuff seriously. Maybe it allows us to close deals with certain types of clients like you just mentioned. You know, there's there are kind of economic benefits in that sense. There's also just the credit, right? The removal itself. And I think there's the perception that right now, because it's voluntary, is kind of a, it's not a super important part of this, of the value, right? But if you're, if you take the problem really seriously, which a lot of these companies really do, I think there is the perception that if they do a really good job with the voluntary, with, you know, doing this in a voluntary way, mm. they'll have more and I think this is, makes sense. This is what I would do if I was in their shoes. They have more control. They have more better understanding that more relationships that matter if and when regulation happens. Mm. Yeah. And so I think there's an expectation that, say, none of the corporate people that are leading this charge take any action at all. But the public still wants action. Eventually, they're going to force action in two ways, right? So they're probably via the government, right? And via their buying decisions. So we've already kind of, kind of covered the competitive advantage buying decision side of it. But if people aren't getting, if you know, if the general population of the world is not getting what it wants from corporations and the results that it wants to see in the world, it's going to figure out another way to get it. And they're probably going to do it via regulation. And so, you know, if I was one of these leading companies, I really would want to be ahead of that. <laughs> would not want to be in the position of having to, you know, say that we didn't do what was necessary. Now we're behind the and curve. now the government's got to tell us what to do. Right. I would be in the position of saying, we've been doing this for a decade. We know exactly how it works. We've driven down costs so that when regulation happens, we it's okay. We can afford the cost. And so I think there's that benefit, which you can see in market leaders. 
And I think everyone benefits from. So I, I think there's that side of it. I think one of the things that we don't talk about, which I think is kind of funny, is that having buyers buy things really far in advance and participate in the creation of a new market is traditionally not reasonable behavior, right? <laughs> like that's a lot to it's a lot to ask, right? And you realize this when when you're on a call with a company and you're like, oh well maybe, you know, maybe you could buy a ton of carbon right now and we'll deliver it over the next 10 years. And barring a few people, a lot of them are like, well, I don't have 10 years of budget yeah. this year. <laughs> I have this year's budget this year. And so of course I want to buy carbon for this year, this year. So there's this expectation that like, oh my gosh, why won't they do this? Well, it's not really how most commodity markets work, right? Like mm, yeah. most of the volume in commodity markets is managed by traders who are the people that understand risk and understand how to hedge and get financial gain from a market like this. And you're starting to see this happen in you know nature-based solutions where it seems like we're about to see a massive wave of just traditional financiers getting into nature-based solution carbon because there's benefit. It's been a very active kind of sector of the carbon removal market this year, just in terms of like equity, private equity even. Yeah. Exactly. And so that is where I expect most of these liquidity, the capital that's going to go into these projects and then get paid back later is going to come from. It's from commodity desks and traditional banks and refi and all these different sources of capital that want to do this work that are not ultimately the consumers of carbon. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're going to be kind of stymied from real scale until those people can enter the market and see this is how it makes sense for me to play in this market. Not because I care about the climate, not because it's, you know, it's got to happen or I care about innovation or I get any PR benefit, but because mm -hmm. I want to make money. Yeah. And so I always try to keep in mind that the end goal isn't, you know, for undo. We could build a company that did a hundred million tons of carbon drawdown a year. And that's really great. That would be Maybe great. Maybe we make a lot of money, but it doesn't like, that doesn't quite do it, right? We really need to get up to huge numbers. And maybe it's, you know, us and a consortium of a lot of other companies. And that's probably how it'll be. But if we're trying to pass a purity test and also hit gigaton and really 10 gigaton scale, it's going to be tough. Yeah. And I think people are going to have to accept that there are going to be people in the carbon market. There's only purpose is try to make money. And I think that's okay. Yeah, I mean, that is definitely a hallmark of most sophisticated, certainly almost all sophisticated commodity markets is that there's a massive amount of transaction volume that has nothing to do with like the actual delivery of bushels of corn or like physically taking delivery of oil or anything like that. More people will get involved in building carbon removal businesses or in every step of the value chain if they have, if they can point at a price and be like, hey, look, this is like what people are, are paying for this service. Whereas currently that's quite opaque. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I used to write a lot about biochar and spend a lot of time looking at biochar companies. And I always made the joke that it was like, well, biochar has been around for 5,000 years. And yet, like, there's still no, and it's this amazing thing, but there's still no big companies mm -hmm. that do it. And I was like, well, so I don't know how this is all working out, right? And I came to the conclusion, ultimately, biochar is great for a lot of stuff, but it was just fundamentally too expensive for people to use. And I was like, the thing that's going to, you know, the reason that they're not people piling into this industry and you're seeing more now, right? But still, is because there's nobody driving a Ferrari around this as biochar in the <laughs> <laughs> That would be cool, though. Like, <laughs> I mean, maybe an electric sports that, car. That would be rad. <laughs> but that's it. When you find the person that's going, you know, I'm doing this great thing. Also, it's just a cash cow. Like, I'm going to go do all this nice stuff. Other people take, no take notice. Yeah. And thus far, it hasn't really happened yet. So, biochar, carbon removal... What else are you excited of, about in the wide world of climate solutions? Let me think. <laughs> Lightning round. I don't know. I mean, sure. Like, the thing that I don't understand why it doesn't get more press is geothermal. Hmm. It just feels like baseload of the future. Other things that I think are, like, fun in that kind of everyone is ignoring them. I talked to a guy a while ago. He runs a company that is pyrolyzing sewage waste, right? Or mm. 
and it's, it's actually it's not it's hydrothermal carbonization but basically it's i was like oh it's cool technology right but what he told me was that something like five percent or seven percent of baseload energy in the united states goes for uh, waste and water treatment i believe that yeah <laughs> and to me that's the exact kind of like what's the least sexy portion of the energy transition you can think of well that's it yeah <laughs> and the fact that it's you know a 20th of developed country emissions mm-hmm. <laughs> along with whatever the remaining you know methane emissions are equivalent to mm-hmm. just represents the kind of exactly the kind of thing that i wish people were piling into right now and i'm sure that we could be doing a lot i mean i know we could also do just be doing a lot better job of treating wastewater and reusing water so there's multiple opportunities there for sure yeah i think this just harkens back to the beginning of the call but all the open ecosystem stuff is the stuff that I think is most interesting just because I do think that is where we, we kind of win or lose the, I don't know, fight for two degrees or two and a half degrees or whatever is reasonable these days. Yeah. And getting the world to understand that we operate with a lot of, that there's a lot of uncertainty in these things. And also demanding certainty is not going to get the right outcomes. Right. And that we need to scale up and, you know, to see the kind of stuff that, Running Tide is doing and Vesta is doing and we're doing and a lot of the ocean alkalinity stuff is super exciting. Mm. And so starting to see how much progress we can make in that in those areas so that we can access these really long, kind of confusing, super important levers. Yeah. Is the stuff I think about a lot. Yeah. As you noted, folks sometimes kind of stumble over or get caught up in that uncertainty loop of thinking around natural systems and it's not unimportant like there is a lot of uncertainty and i think folks that investigate that and try to study this behavior to really understand it better like that's hugely valuable but i think to me it also almost feels intuitive that there's so much power in these natural systems if we learn to harness them kind of they've already been sequestering carbon and providing tons of other benefits for you know millions of years so if we better understand them and help them kind of do what they already do then there should be a lot of power in that, even if we don't understand exactly how it happens or the exact magnitudes on a year-by-year basis. I think that's absolutely right. And I wish people were able to see that this is kind of a mud puddle moment, which it's like, you just got to go through it. And the best way to go through it is to go through Mm. it. And that doesn't mean that people in the field don't think it's important. Mm -hmm. Like we think it's absolutely critical. We think about it all the time. Right on. All right. Peter, thanks so much for coming on. Wide-reaching, fun conversation. Yeah, this is really, really fun. Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting-edge climate tech, make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon.